It's episode 96 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Veen. Today, Andy Budd returns to the program. He's the founder of the UK-based design agency, ClearLeft, and we're going to talk about how they've transitioned their business to an employee ownership trust. Oh, Andy, welcome back. Uh, Jeff, I mean, you know I love hanging out with you. I love spending time with you. I love chatting with you. So, you know, any opportunity to spend time in Natter is is a good opportunity. So thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Do you know it's been four years since the last time you were on the program? Uh, No way. Yeah, yeah. It was shortly after the election uh, in the United States. Uh, We talked a bit about that. Uh, But we talked a lot about design leadership and the design leadership conference that you had organized at the Barbican. Yeah, um, yeah. So we've been running leading design. I guess if it was four years ago since I last spoke to you, that was quite new. Yeah. I think we're now in our kind of like fifth or, or sixth year, um, and yeah, that's been going pretty well. You know, obviously, you know, COVID nineteen and pandemic kind of notwithstanding, um, we had a whole bunch of events lined up this year in San Francisco, in New York, and London. All of those have actually now pivoted online. So we yeah. just announced a couple of days ago. We've we created this new thing called LD Fest or Leading Design Fest, which will be a whole month of activity taking place in the month of March. Um, so all of that good stuff that you would have had in person around the world is now going to be centered in March um, next year. So, yeah, that's been a big part of what I've been up to the last, I know, three or four months, I guess. Yeah, no, I bet. That's kept you pro- probably very busy. I, you know, I'm curious. Let's take a little detour towards that. I want to talk about Clear Left and the changes that you guys have all made. Uh, but I'm curious about the virtual events. I had Mark Thiel who did uh, Beyond Telerand. And, and he and I were talking about that at the very beginning of the pandemic. Uh, I just went through hosting for, you know, the founders uh, of the port of the companies that True Ventures has invested in, the company I work for. We did mm-hmm. a big virtual gathering over three days with lots of different events. And, and, uh, uh, we, you know, normally we get everybody together once a year, and this was an attempt to try to capture some of that. Uh, and uh, I found it really both enlightening and, and pretty entertaining. Um, uh, I'm wondering how that's been for your virtual events. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. I think there are interesting parallels with other mediums. I'm going to take a little bit of a detour now. But basically, back in the old days, when radio um so when tv started effectively all the shows were like radio plays that were filmed people were so used to sticking with the previous medium that they tried to just port that medium to a new technology and i think for the first six months of online conferences like you know post-pandemic that's what a lot of people did they just took you know their lineup which they carefully curated um and they literally lifted it kind of like you know person by person you know minute by minute online um, I can get why they did that because obviously, you know, there's a lot of work putting schedules together, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm a designer at heart. And so when I'm looking at planning an event, I want to plan and design it from the ground up based on the unique aspects of the medium. And as we know, you know, the last six months have been hopping on Zoom call after Zoom call after Zoom mm-hmm. call. It can be quite tiring. It can be quite um hard to keep your attention span much harder than being in a physical auditorium because you've got you know you've got your your phone you can chat to people you can multitask no one's going to give you bad looks from the stage if you're you know doing three or four things at a time right and so i think it's really really tough to kind of do that porting and so what we've tried to do with the new leading design festival like i say we're spreading it out over a month there's probably similar amount of content you'd have to a normal three, four, five day event. 
but we wanted to make sure that there was ample space in between for people to get their work done, to check out any slack fires, to kind of, you know, um, fit in around their work. We didn't want to have like, you know, eight to 10 back-to-back sessions. Um, so we've made the session shorter. We've made the gaps bigger. Um, we've One of the brilliant things about online is you can, you can place shift, you can time shift. So all of our sessions will be recorded. Um, some people will dip in and out during the day as it goes. They'll pick the, the favorite talks that they really want to watch live. But then they might cycle back in a month or two's time and watch the talks they missed um, when it fits their schedule better. Um, and these are also the learnings that we had. We ran a conference four or five months ago called SofaConf, which was a little online conference aimed at practitioners rather than design leaders. And that's the behavior that we saw. In fact, this was our minimum viable product. It was almost like a test, like we created a new brand, we created a new format, and we explored and we played to learn user behavior. And we used all the knowledge that we learned from that event to iterate into our big leading design event. So yeah, you know, so it, it's it's fascinating how, you know, you need to design for the medium. Um, and yeah, and that's what we've been doing. That's really interesting. And you're, and you're absolutely right. Uh, as we were sort of preparing for our virtual event, uh, we did, a bu- we, we were looking at all the new software platforms that are springing up. And I remember this one demo uh, of somebody that said, we also have the virtual trade show. And I was like, oh, really? What is that? And they're like, let me show you. And and it was literally like your browser turns into almost like a like a first-person shooter game where it's like 3D view of booths at a trade show floor <laughs> and you navigate with your you know, with your cursor and your mouse and, and yeah, like yeah. go up to a booth, which would then show you a YouTube video. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I'm not sure this is capturing what you want it to capture, but, um, but the idea to revert right back to a medium that we know it, it you know, really well, yeah. I think is, is, is a very human tendency, um, but probably not the best solution. So and I'm sure, not hopefully not throwing you under a bus here, but I'm sure you're of the same age that like, you know, I was quite an early web user. And I remember some of the early like experiments with e-commerce was like, well, let's build a department store. And you actually physically, you know, walked mm. through a department store in really bad clunky VR type situations. Yeah. And it's like, nobody wants to kind of like have to actually physically walk through a virtual space to go and and buy shoes and go to a different store to buy books. I think now this is what we're having with VR. People are trying to to, to recreate the the physicality. So what we always need to do is need to find some kind of compromise that that takes the best out of both worlds, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. One of the things that I found really inspirational for the work we were doing on this virtual event was to watch uh, Twitch, so live stream gamers, people that are playing Minecraft or, you know, uh, World of Warcraft or, or things like that and how they interact with a live audience that's watching them, right? And some of these streamers will have, you know, 20, 30, 50,000 people watching at the same time, but most of them, you know, have a few hundred or, or, or a couple thousand. Um, and their attempts to both pay attention to the game, but also play in with the audience and have the audience participate and say, no, 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 go over there, work on that, you know, and having like, you know, having, they, they would throw polls into the chat stream and people could, you know, vote on what, you know, they wanted to see. And, and, and it made it a really, like, it became very clear that there were, there was value on top of, I could just watch this later. 
you could just record it and I could do it later, you know, um, that there was some value in being live. And, and that's something I'm really interested in, in all the virtual stuff that we're doing now. I mean, Twitch is a fascinating platform. I mean, every time I go yeah. there, I do feel like an old man kind of like going, I don't quite, <laughs> I can't quite keep up. Because yeah, you know, the, the conversations just fly past. And, yeah. you know, there's, I mean, it, it really is a community, but you're absolutely right. It's fascinating watching online communities and, and, and sort of influencers and streamers about how they interact with their audience and how they make the live experience valuable. And so we're hoping to try and bring some of that into, into the show as well. And, and you can, like, if you want for our conference, um, you can buy just a live ticket. So we want to try and get as many people coming as possible. So we've got a, a budget level, which is live only. Um, so there will be a lot of people hopefully watching live and we want to try and make that a great experience. But for your busy, harried kind of design leader that's, that, whose life is bouncing from meetings to meetings, we also want to allow them a, an option to catch up, you know, a week, a month, you know, later. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That sounds great. Well, I look forward to it. We'll put some uh, details about all of that in the show notes so people know where they can go and check it out. That's great. Um, but uh, big change at ClearLeft. Uh, you guys have uh, you've done something a little innovative. You want to tell me about it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like ClearLeft, we're a design agency in Brighton. Um, we've been running for about 15 years. Um I have a lot of friends that are also design agency founders, as you can imagine, and you were a design agency uh, founder for a, for a while yourself. So, you know, that's how we, you know, got to know each other in part. Mm -hmm. um, and I know a lot of design agency founders who started their business primarily as a business to sell. And so, you know, they, they, they are running the business and growing the business in a way that's going to maximize the opportunity for a third party buyer to come in and, and buy it. And that often means hitting in the UK, it means hitting a set of financial targets. Mm. Generally, a third party buyer won't buy your agency unless you're doing a million uh, pounds EBITDA um, a year. That's a, um, a, a, a profit calculation yeah. and usually about five million turnover they're going to expect you to have a whole bunch of processes in place so that when the founding team leaves, the company will carry on, et cetera, et cetera. So you're not, you know, you're not a bottleneck. And, you know, ideally you're going to, if you're going to be growing your business to sell, you're going to be running very lean because ultimately what the people coming to buy your business will want to look at is they want to say, okay, you know, we can see where the value is. You know, this company is growing really, really fast. If we take the foot off the gas a little bit, we can start extracting some of the some of the value of the business or fold it into the our offering, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so there are there are fairly kind of common formulas for for growing a business like that. Clearleft was almost run on the exact opposite um, kind of philosophy. Um, we we're designers. We love design. Um, the thing that gets me up in the morning, particularly, is trying to share the value of design with as many people as possible. Yeah. I truly think that design has a transformationary power. I think it can make people's lives better. I think it can reduce, you know, frustration and annoyance. And, you know, there's a lot of that online at the moment. Um, and I think um, as technology, particularly development, has become commoditized, I truly believe that design is one of the last areas for competitive advantage. There are others, first to market, um, you know, having you know, cut brilliant sort of syndication deals or, or, or partnership deals or whatever. But design is undoubtedly a great, powerful competitive advantage. And so I want to put that into as many people's hands as possible. Um, we do that as an agency by servicing our clients. And we've got some amazing clients. And, you know, seeing 
seeing maybe some of our clients be slightly skeptical about what design can do to their business at the start of the engagement. And then maybe six, nine months later, seeing how much money they've been able to make through the work we've done and how much they've suddenly become invested in design because they see it as a a value creator, I think is it is wonderful. Um, but we're a small agency and there's only so many clients that we can service um, without letting the quality go down. I see a lot of the other agencies out there, they grow really big because their focus is on, like I say, hitting these growth targets and maybe the quality dips. Our focus has always been, you know, be a relatively small agency, like we're 25, 30 people, um, you know, modest kind of turnover, modest targets. You know, we, we say that we're a lifestyle business, but we just have a very nice life. Um, <laughs> you know, we're not a small mum and pup shop. I'm nothing wrong with that, but nor are we someone that wants to kind of go and, you know, become a, a, a mega agency. So we're quite happy doing what we're doing. Um, the events that we talked about a little bit at the start, or a way of us maximizing our impact even further because we can maybe only do 20 or 30 client projects a year, but we can hopefully share the knowledge that we've learned and our connections in the industry have learned with hundreds, if not thousands of, of people online. Um, and actually one of the great things you talked about, maybe some of the benefits of, of remote um, of remote events is with a remote event, you can get your content to more people sure. um, and people that would not normally be able to come. So, right. you know, one of the challenges of running a leadership event in London is you've got to be either in London or be able to afford a flight and a hotel to come to London. Whereas now, you know, you can be anywhere in the world and, you know, for a fraction of the price it would cost you to attend, you can, you can you know, open up your laptop and, and learn this information remotely. So all of these things kind of are the reason we get up in the morning. Um, and so we've never really been growing the business to sell it right but interestingly this creates its own problem um we've got an amazingly talented staff of of designers developers you know product managers project managers you know operation staff um i think you know we've probably got i i would like to think one of the best teams in the uk um i would say that though because i'm kind of biased um (laughs) but quite often like folks in the company will come to us and say look andy like i really like working here so much I want to have a stake in the business. Like I, I, you know, I, I put all of my time and effort and work into this company to make it as good as possible. I want to feel vested or invested. And normally in that situation, what you would go and do is you'd create some kind of stock options or share pool. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've come across challenges with that. So if you are a company that is growing with the pure focus of selling, you're, you're a tech company, let's say, Hopefully those stocks will will vest. They they will have some value at some sale at some stage in the future. You'll IPO, you get bought, and those share options will turn into cash. But if you are growing a business where you are focused on not selling, what you're doing is you're basically getting your team to buy into a sense of ownership that will never ever come to fruition. Um, and that always seemed kind of unfair. You're kind of dangling a carrot. Um, but the, but it's never going to go anywhere. And actually what might be worse um, is if you do give up out a whole bunch of shares to a lot of people, including the leadership team, maybe the culture changes. Maybe suddenly that team that were invested in growing the business because of the intrinsic value start to look at the size of their share pot grow and go, oh, well, maybe we should start 
you know, heading towards an exit. I mean, again, there's nothing wrong with an exit, but that's just not really been where our future is. Like we've always wanted to grow a sustainable business, a business that can last 15, 25, 35, 40 years, maybe even a business that could last after me and Rich not only leave the company, but maybe, you know, leave our mortal coil. And, you know, there might be other, other you know, owners and founders of the company going far into the future. So if share options weren't, the way to achieve this, you know, we were wondering what would be. And um, about six years ago, we came across this idea idea of employee ownership. And actually, it turns out one of the biggest companies or one of the most loved companies in the UK, a high street brand called John Lewis, uh, are employee owned. And we actually worked with John Lewis. And as a client, it was really amazing, like work as a client. Yeah. So um, so we 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 did a big redesign, a big kind of design system um, project with them to help them overhaul their online store. So we were in the office a ton. And I should uh, point point out to our uh, US viewers that John Lewis is kind of like Macy's, kind of a department store, right? You can you can buy your clothes, you can get a TV there. It's like, and it's it's the biggest one, I believe, in the UK. Yeah, it's sort of, a, I, I was thinking about suggesting a, a, a brand, but I thought I might kind of get the get the tone wrong but, but John Lewis <laughs> is quite an upmarket sort of store yeah. um and also i guess it, it has a a grocery arm called waitrose which is a little bit like a a whole foods kind yeah. of you know yeah. upmarket kind right. of sort of middle class you know heaven for all all good food stuffs so like you know at, at christmas people will go to shop in waitrose to get their their lovely food for christmas as a bit mm. of a treat um yep. but yeah and and all of the employees are part owners. So if you work at if you work at um, John Lewis, you are a partner in John Lewis. And we saw the power of this sense of ownership had on the team because a team at John Lewis weren't just like working for the man or the woman or just working to make sure that the the board could report a stellar year to the you know to the um to the stock market or to their their shareholders. Right. The people running the business had a duty to run it in a way that would benefit the employees. And the employees there, because they were also partners, were invested in the success. And they knew that if they didn't do a good job, then they'd be letting their team down, they'd be letting their partners down. Um, they wouldn't be getting the bonus that they were hoping for at the end of the year. And so there really was a, an incredibly positive um, attitude that this sense of ownership instilled. And I did a bit of digging, and it turns out that this is quite common in employee-owned companies. Employee-owned companies tend to perform better on average. They tend to be happier. Um, people tend to be healthier. They tend to stay there for longer. So all of these positive attributes um, became very, very attractive. And so for the last kind of five or six years, we've been working towards, in the background, um, becoming employee-owned. And it might seem, you know, like a like a, a strange thing to do, but as a company, like. As a design agency, you are basically a talent business. You know, I'm a talent agent. My job basically is to go out and find the best designers I can and then introduce them to the best clients. Right. And if you have the best designers and the best clients, you do amazing work. And if one of those two things fall down, you know, things go in the wrong direction. And so, you know, um, hiring people who feel really, really invested in success and can go to a client and say, hey, look, I'm not just an employee making Andy rich. I'm actually a part owner in the business. And, you know, when I'm talking to you, you know, 
that's that's the kind of you know when I'm giving you advice, that's the kind of context which I'm 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 giving it from is is really really powerful. Also, you know, we've always been invested in our team. You know, we you know we're really lucky at Clearleft that people stick around for ages. You know, in, a, in an industry where people maybe leave every eighteen months or two years, yep. you know, people stick around at Clearleft for seven, eight, nine years. I mean, you know, we've been in business for fifteen years, and our longest serving. Um, staff member, you know, who'd been with us for 13 years, just left, you know, you know, recently. Wow. Um, so yeah, so so building a business that that people that we care about has always been in our DNA. You know, we've always, you know, I I've seen founder friends of mine who have made big redundancies. I say friends like acquaintances who have made big redundancies. And at the same time, been bragging on Twitter that they bought a brand new Audi or a brand new mm, Porsche yeah. or a brand new, you know, kind of like fast car or look at my house with a swimming pool. And you're just thinking like, what signal does this send? You know, you, you, what, what these people obviously did is extract all the money out of the business to buy their fancy, you know, fancy gizmos and gadgets, cut half of their team. The other half that has survived are then kind of feeling you know, resentful and angry and what have you, and they're going to leave pretty soon. And you just get this horrible, um, selfish, sort of self-fulfilling kind of situation. Hmm. So, yeah, so we decided to go in in another direction and, and we have set up this um, program, which has been running in the UK now for three or four years, called an Employee Ownership Trust. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to go into more details of the trust. I have a lot of questions about that, as you could imagine, uh, but we're going to take a quick break first uh, and we'll be right back. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Teamistry, a podcast that tells the stories of teams who work together in new and unexpected ways to achieve remarkable things. Each episode of Teamistry tells a story, and in each story, you'll find practical lessons for your team and your business. Uh, This season, the show travels deep into underwater caves in northern Thailand to discover how divers and medics and soldiers and volunteers freed a group of trapped teenagers. It explains in another episode how world-renowned watch company put two of their factories to work against each other in an attempt to be the best watchmaker in the world. Uh, there's another episode uh, about how Iceland went from having the highest COVID-19 death rates in Scandinavia to an interesting example of how a government can deal with the virus. So you can discover a bunch of stories that are entertained but are also packed with the kind of stuff that you can do with your own teams and your jobs and your businesses, uh, stuff you can really use. Uh, season two of Teamistry is out now. It's hosted by award-winning documentary filmmaker Gabriella Copperthwaite. Uh, she's the director of Blackfish, you may be familiar with. I listened to an episode uh, from season one about, uh, you remember that photograph they did of the black hole that we had never had before uh, a couple of years ago? Uh, the story behind that is remarkable because it was a team of literally hundreds of people working together around the world with all of these observatories pointing in the exact same spot in the sky all at once, all the engineering that went on, all the coordination. Uh, it was just really remarkable. Uh, I found it fascinating as an example of how how large groups of people can work together. Something I think that, uh, you know, if you're managing a team or part of a bigger organization or even just starting a company, super interesting to you too. So search for Teamistry wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can find a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Thanks to Teamistry for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. 
All right. So that was a very interesting description of sort of the journey you take, you took to get where you are. I really appreciate the, the sort of philosophy and values behind that. You know, and, it's, and it's really interesting, Andy, to think about our sort of two paths, right? Uh, we did something very similar with Adaptive Path to what you were doing with Clear Left. And when I saw the news that you were going to uh, I don't know what the right phrase is, sell to your employees or transform the business into more of a cooperative is, is a term we would use in the U.S. Um, it made me really reflect on the degree to which our values are informed by the company we keep, right? Like uh, it made me think like the whole, all of the, all of the philosophy and set of values that we had at Adaptive Path were very much formed by the fact that we were uh, in San Francisco, we were a Silicon Valley company. We all, almost all of our clients were Silicon Val- Valley start. Well, not not all startups, but but at least part of that ecosystem, which had a very clear roadmap for value creation. Right? You mentioned employee options yep. and and stock option pools and and things like that. Um, equity programs were something that for us to be able to hire designers, they all assumed we had one because we were in the Valley and they all, you know, that, that Mm -hmm. was like, well, I could go to Facebook or I could work here. So let me, let me do the apples to apples comparison. Our employees would, you know, our, our prospects would say, and they would say like, you know, what's your ESOP like? (laughs) And and we'd have (laughs) to, you know, um, we had to come up with some kind of system like that very early on, which uh, which I, I believe we had to do that. I have, a, I have a story that I tell myself that we had to do that in order mm-hmm. to retain the kind of talent in Silicon Valley that we needed to be competitive. And therefore, that put us on a path where a, a potential outcome, a, a acquisition of some sort to make those options whole was inevitable. Uh, but uh, th- that, that may or may not actually have been the case. Um, uh, and you've taken a very different path. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think context makes a huge difference. I think, you know, I, a lot of my friends run agencies in London and they're going out, you know, on a weekly basis, going and having coffees and brunches with their friends. And if one agency founder sells and makes a couple of million or five million or 10 million and then goes and buys a house in the country in a nice car, all the other agency founders in London hear about it really quickly and very quickly, they start to want the same. It's a case of keeping up with the Joneses. Um, in a weird kind of way, I feel quite lucky because I'm based in Brighton. Brighton is a lovely um, town on the south coast. It's an hour south of London. It's close to London, so we can get in and have some of those conversations. But I'm not having to face this kind of sort of like keeping up the neighbours um sense of of stress on a day-to-day basis. Most of my friends in Brighton are really, really happy running small businesses, little coffee shops, little lifestyle businesses. Actually, weirdly for them, like we're the big boys, you know, we're a 25-person company that's been going for 15 years, you know, we're the sellouts. Um, And so I kind of get myself grounded quite a lot. Also, I think the other thing is in the UK, um, there is much more of an attitude in businesses of making money through dividends rather than making money through some kind of exit. So people will be growing a business in order to be making a, a, a regular profit to extract the value from that profit year on year. And, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a nice, comfortable life. And I think a lot of that comes from the history of, of the country. You know, we're a very, very old country. 
Um, I think also some of it comes from my own history. Like I come from a working class background. I come from what, what would be arguably, you know, described as a poor background. You know, I was tweeting, there's a big um, political thing happening at the moment in the UK around um, the government um, not supporting kids at school who are from poor families right. um, with uh, free lunches um, outside of school during sort of COVID lockdown. And I'm somebody that really benefited, you know, I, my, my family, I, I was brought up in a, in a council house, so like a, a state provided housing. Mm-hmm. My parents were not rich by any means. My dad, you know, my mum was a, a, a full-time mum and my dad worked on building sites. So I was the recipient at school of, of free lunches. So I also come from a background where, you know, the, the, the wealthiest person I knew you know, they had an office job. I was like, wow, you know, all of my parents, like friends and family worked on building sites, you know, did manual work. Yeah. So I didn't know people who were bankers and, and business people, et cetera, et cetera. So I think my context of growing up was that I've been incredibly lucky. I've built a thing that has value and I want to make sure that I keep it and look after it and nurture it and not risk it. Whereas a lot of the people I know that run startups, they tend to come from backgrounds that are slightly more privileged. And that's not to say that they've necessarily benefited directly. It's not that they've necessarily gone to their parents to, you know, or friends and family to do a raise, although quite often they have done. Hmm. But if you come from a background where failure means you have to go back and get a job in Wall Street um, and get a million pound bonus that year, um, that's quite an that's quite an easy path to like grow a business, you fail. Again, you fail. Third time, you flip it. Because if you fail, the worst case scenario is probably better than most cases, best case scenario. And so I think, you know, there's definitely a a big difference between the context of what it must be like growing a business in San Francisco and what it must be like growing in in Brighton. And I'm sure, you know, to be honest, like if if Clearleft had grown in in, in San Francisco, if we had decided at some stage to move over and set up an office in San Francisco, which we had done, you know, talked about several times, mm-hmm. we might have been approached by a Google or a Facebook or, a, you know, an Airbnb or whatever. And I'm sure in context of having a, you know, a company that you really admire come to you and say, hey, look, we love your stuff. Do you want to come in house and, and work for us? We might have chosen a different path. Sure. Um but, you know, our context is completely different from that. And so in our context, this was the most sensible approach to take. Interesting. Interesting. There's there's also this other path that I want to just, uh, let's take a little detour into that as well, which is the agency holding company, right? Like the WPPs or the Omnicom or Publicis, mm. Publicis. Uh, we, in our adaptive path days, spent a lot of time talking to them and, uh, uh, generally wholly rejected it just because of the 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 mechanisms and the and the way the deals were were structured uh and just a general distaste for all of that wondering if you've ever gone down that path and had those kinds of conversations where where your agency becomes part of a a network of agencies and uh and there's supposedly benefits and payouts and and things like that it's a slightly different kind of acquisition from the Silicon Valley acquisition? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've been approached. Um, we've been approached plenty of times. Actually, ironically, I had a conversation with somebody only last week saying, hey, look, you know, what would it like if we were to buy Clear Left? Mm. Um, but those conversations generally don't go very far because I generally don't let them go very far <laughs> because that's not what we're building Clear Left for. I, and, and again, you know, this this 
you know, this might be seen as some kind of like left-wing European kind of like socialist approach to building a business. You know, I, I don't care really. Like our team are the reason why we're successful. I want to do everything in my power to make sure that that team are looked after and respected. And I have seen so many companies um, that have sold their business to, you know, one of the types of organizations that you describe. Yeah. And what happens is it becomes very destructive. No, the founders get a three-year golden handcuffs and then they leave. The senior team leave pretty quickly after that. A few people might stay because they've now got a nice cozy job, but more and more people leave. So what's left of the company is not any of the staff. It's just the brand name and the the, the book of work. But then very quickly that that holding company goes, well, actually, look, you know, that brand name isn't worth anywhere near as much as our brand name. So we're just going to roll you into our bigger business. And in four, five, six years time, it's as if that agency never existed, you know, and every now and again, you'll be sitting around with a group of friends and going, oh, whatever happened to insert agency X? And you'll kind of scratch your head and go, I don't know. They were really good at one stage, weren't they? And they just disappeared. I never wanted to be part of that conversation. I never wanted to be an agency that people forgot because because it got, you know, got sold under the team. And like I say, I, I know people that have come into work one day and the founders have got great news. I just sold my business for, you know, five or 10 million. Bad news, you're fired. And you're kind of like, oh man, just don't, don't be that guy. So the purpose of running an EOT, an employee ownership trust, is to make sure, well, two things. First of all, to try and discourage the the desire to sell, you know, to try and create something that has long-term value. Um, so, but but if a sales event does happen, like being becoming employee-owned doesn't mean that we we could never sell. But what it would mean is that not only the the original founders, like me, Rich, and Jeremy, would have to decide to sell. But the trust that looks after the company on behalf of all the employees would have to decide to sell. And so that then means that the trust now would have to go and talk to the employees and say, hey, look, you know, this is what a sale would mean for you. Um, it would mean you'd make a bit of money because you're all, you know, owners in one way or the other. But it would also mean that, you know, you would lose some of your rights because you'd now be, you know, selling to a third party yep. and they could fire you and they could do this and that and the other and they could run down the business and Clay Left might not be in existence anymore. What do you think? And I'd get a vote, but everybody else in the company would get a vote. And we would then decide whether we felt that was the right thing to do. And if we all agreed that it was the right thing to do, that's great. But what I, we could never do is sell it from under the feet of our staff. Mm. Because that would be a horrible thing to come in, you know, to to give up five, six, seven years of your your life to then find that the company had been sold underneath you and you're getting nothing from it. The other thing I wanted to say is you mentioned something earlier about kind of like co-ops. And I don't know how kind of geeky and technical you want to get into how this sort of employee ownership trust operates, but it's very much not a co-op. Hmm. Um, I actually don't like co-ops. Um, I think when you're looking at kind of models for running businesses, there are two slightly different but related things you need to look at uh-huh. one is around ownership and one is around workplace democracy and there are a lot of models around workplace democracy um like um uh oh um i forget what it's called now the 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 model that um zappos uh used Can you remember oh, what it's called right. holacracy holacracy yeah right 
Yeah. And holacracy is very much about kind of empowering staff members to be making day-to-day decisions, but there's nothing about ownership in there. Um, with an employee trust, it's very much about ownership. There's a little bit of governance stuff that you can put into it, but it's mostly about ownership. Um, the challenge with um, something like a co-op is it's both ownership and democracy. And if in a situation where everyone gets a say and everyone can be a blocking vote, you can end up having really, really challenging um, kind of conversations which kind of end up stilting the ability of the company to um, to move forward. And, and mm. you know, you end up becoming very, very introverted. That's not to say that co-ops aren't good in certain situations, but we wanted to make sure that the governance process of Clear Left stayed in a way that maximised its kind of forward momentum and didn't get sort of tied up in lots of internal politics because that's just not a lot of fun. And so the employee trust process, which maybe I can talk about after your next break, um, helps to kind of solve some of those problems. I really appreciate that. I did not understand the difference there, um, uh, but focusing on the sort of uh, ownership versus operations really is really uh, helpful. That makes a, that makes a lot more sense. Um, yeah, let's take a little quick break here uh, and uh, and we'll be right back. And this episode of Presentable is sponsored by another podcast that you should check out, and that is SyncUp, a OneDrive podcast from our friends over at Microsoft. Um, if you're looking for a new show to listen to, check out SyncUp. It takes you behind the scenes of OneDrive so you can learn about how to connect files and share your documents and work from anywhere. And you'll get to hear about the design and development side of things too. So each show covers a dedicated topic and has guest interviews, uh, news and announcements, plus a, plus a special topic outside of the technology norm. And so you have an idea of what to expect. Uh, some of the topics include uh, things like empowering Mac users or changing management, production and adoption and customer success, file sharing, personal vaults, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's a new episode uh, that just landed uh, a, a couple of weeks ago about Microsoft Ignite, uh, the big sort of developer conference that Microsoft hel- holds every year, uh, and a lot of new features that are being added to OneDrive. And so they talk about all of that. So you can get a sense of all the changes that are happening. Go uh, and have a listen to it now. Uh, just search for Sync Up wherever you get your podcast. That's S Y N C U P, or just click the link down in the uh, show notes. Go check it out. Our thanks to Sync Up and Microsoft for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. All right. So yeah, I, w- I would actually, Andy, like to t- talk a little bit about some of the mechanics around this, um, uh, around how the ownership works. Um, look, for, from my own understanding, like I mentioned before, I'm very familiar with how um, options work, stock options and, um, and equity in the more tech company sense of the word. And, and that is you know, an, an attempt to distribute ownership against some kind of algorithm that attempts to, uh, you know, value the risk that somebody has taken on and their contribution, right? So much more senior people with more responsibility tend to get more, a bigger equity stake in the company. Uh, people who mm-hmm. were there early on, who perhaps left pretty solid jobs to come to a place that uh, was ambiguous as to whether it would succeed in the future, like those people then ostensibly get more equity but uh none of that equity comes with any say in the uh like the ability to sell or any of that right it is it is quote unquote common stock mm-hmm. and not preferred stock right 
Um, and so I, I wonder, like, in this mechanism, like, you mentioned having an employee that's been there 7, 8, 13 years versus somebody that's been there 6 months. Are they going to get the same level of ownership? Like, how is all of that figured out? Like, is there vesting? Is there, like, a waiting period before you get to be an owner if you're hired on? Like, how does all that work? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really enjoying this co- this conversation because, again, from, from your perspective, not only as a serial entrepreneur, but also now a, a partner in a VC firm, I can imagine your 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 kind of like your brain is kind of looking through all of these <laughs> kind of models you're used to and kind of sort of putting it on, on this model. Um, I have capitalist in my job title. So, you know, <laughs> I'm very interested in, the, uh, in, in this alternative path you've taken. Yes, please go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, I'd, I'd step back a little bit and say, you know, I think the logic that you made around like why people get share options and how the share options might get distributed on the surface makes a lot of sense. I'm not sure in practice that actually is true. I'm not sure that the guy that got, what, 1% of Facebook shares for doing some graffiti in their garage and is now a, a multimillionaire necessarily risked more than somebody who left a really, really stable job when Facebook were 500 or 1,000 or 5,000 people. Mm. Um, so I think it's a story we tell ourselves that we, you know, we we give more to the people in early because they give, they're delivering, you know, like having a bigger risk. But actually, I often find that, you know, the early staff members cycle out really, really quickly. And it's the, it's the second or third sort of like intake of people that are really building the business. And they're the ones whose blood, sweat and tears go into turning it from a hobby in a, a, a garage, you know, project into something that that delivers real value. I think also, you know, there is an argument, like you say, that, you know, if you're a, a VP of design, you'd be going and getting, you know, a, a job at GE and it'd be very stable and you get a ton of money. Going and working a tech company, maybe you're taking a bigger risk. On the other hand, these days, I think that might have been true 10, 15 years ago. These days, if you're going in at an executive level, um, you're probably going to be getting more cash than you would do in an equivalent traditional company anyway. And you're getting a bunch of shares that could end up, you know, making you a, a, a multimillionaire. So I think while the logic you describe was definitely the case 10 or 20 years ago, I'm not entirely convinced that that it quite pays out that way in 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 every you know every sort of setting but i totally get the the narrative makes a ton of sense i'm totally w- willing to accept that there's an argument to be made that the distribution of equity probably maps better to a person's ability to negotiate than you know perhaps their value to the company mm. like that's the case with salaries as well and, frankly and their race and their gender and that's what i was going to say it's also an embodiment of our of the owner's values or and biases right like it, it it is all of that stuff needs to be corrected and i think there are some unfortunate exceptions to the rule where like you said yeah like the graffiti artist makes a million dollars and and things like that um but i am interested in how an employee operated uh, or employee-owned, rather, business or, or trust, like you're setting up, can be competitive in the market, uh, or, or perhaps even more competitive because of the the values associated with a company like that. Yep. Well, the process is actually, I say it's quite simple, but um, it's what ends up happening is you set up a separate company, a separate limited company, which is the trust, you know, Clear Left mm-hmm. Trust Limited, let's say it's called. Um, and then the current trading company or the current owners rather, so that'd be me and Rich, 
we sell our shares to the trust. So now you have a trust that is looking after a percentage of the shares of the business. To be an employee ownership trust, you have to sell a controlling stake. So an employee ownership trust can set up with, be set up with 51% ownership of the shares. A lot of people will sell 100%. Mm, we decided yeah. to sell 75. Uh-huh. Um, the reason we decided to sell 75 is we wanted to make it abundantly clear to our team that we weren't going anywhere anytime soon. This was not our kind of like get out of jail free card. Yep. We were still invested in the success of the business and we still believe that the company can grow. You know, we haven't hit a high point. You know, we, we still have shares in the business because in 20 years time, if it's tripled, quad, you know, quadrupled in size, if there is a sale event, we want to, you know, we believe in the business enough to kind of, you know, be be still invested in it. But what happens is the bulk of the shares get put in trust. Um, and just like a trust fund, really, um, you know, the what you do with the capital in a trust fund gets decided by a group of trustees. And there are different ways of putting trustees in place. In a trust fund, it might be you put your banker and you put your business partner and you put your, you know, your 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 wise cousin in charge, and they decide how the money gets divided for your your itinerant kid. In the case of a business, we could have hired professional trustees. And had we hired professional trustees, you know, the business would have run largely the same as it always had run. We decided we wanted to get a little bit more workplace democracy involved. So what we did is we set up an election and we said to the company, this is going to be opt out. If you want to be considered to be a trustee, you don't have to do anything. If you don't want to become a trustee, let us know and we'll opt you out. And everyone voted and we voted three trustees in to look after the trust. They effectively become the board of this new business called the trust. Right. And they're voted in for three years. And basically the way it works is the trustees effectively manage this asset, you know, the shares on behalf of a a bigger pool of people. And let's say, you know, like, you know, next year, uh, Clearleft makes a a profit. And that profit goes to, gets transferred from Clearleft, the agency, to if the board says so. So there's still a board. Clearleft still has a board. And let's say that year, the board says, look, you know, Clearleft have done really well. We're going to distribute the profit you know, in the form of a dividend. Rather than that dividend coming to me and Rich, that dividend goes to the company, which is a trust. And then the trust says, well, how do we want to, you know, what do we want to do with this money? Do we want to give everyone a thousand pound bonus or more? You know, do we want to, you know, um, you know, maybe everyone's been working really hard. Do we want to go and spend that money to take everyone on a holiday? Hey, maybe if we've got quite a lot of money in the trust, we could buy a holiday home. And let all of our staff members go and use it, you know, free of charge or cheap, you know, for for two weeks a year. Maybe the trust says, actually, look, we've got a lot of younger members of the team that are struggling to get their foot on the ladder, trying to struggle to get um, a deposit for a house. We'll put together a loan that is very, very low value, you know, maybe, you know, three, three percent or whatever, you know, kind of, um, you know, or zero percent or whatever they want to do right. to make it easier for people to kind of um, get on, you know. So basically the trust can do whatever they want with that money, um, but it has to be for the benefit of employees, ideally current and future employees. Quite often, like me and Rich would do at the end of the year, quite often the trust would go, actually, look, you know, um, we want to grow the business next year. We want to hire a couple of new designers. And so we want to plow 60% of the profit back into the business. 
and we want to spend 20% of the profit because we want to do the office up, let's say, and we want to give 20% of this as, you know, bonuses to the team. So that's all that really is happening. You now have this entity, instead of me and Rich, you have this benevolent entity whose job is to distribute the benefits of the business to the staff. And what they might choose to do might not be in direct benefit. You know, the staff could come to the trustees and say, hey, look, I think you should all give us £5,000 bonus at the end of the year. Just as a trust fund kid might go to the trust and say, hey, look, I think you should buy me a Porsche. Now, the trustees might go, yeah, sure, you deserve a Porsche. You've been good this year. Or they might say, no, but we'll pay for you to go to Cornell University. Um, So the trustees do not have to do what the beneficiary wants them to do. They are acting on behalf of the beneficiary as a, as a, you know, as a grown up, as a, as, you know, a kind of adult supervision, I think is often sort of described in, in VC world. Um, And so, so everybody who is an employee of the company that has passed their probation period is considered as a beneficiary of the trust. Um, But it's down to the trustees to decide how they divvy things up. So let's just say simple thing this year, we make a profit the board says to the trust, we're going to issue dividends. We would like the trust to decide how you're going to give the bonus out. The trust could decide, well, we're going to give it all equally because, you know, that's how we roll. Or the trust could say, well, actually, look, you know, Bob and Mary have done an extent, like outstanding job this year. We're going to give them more because they've won yeah. this big contract. Also, we don't think it's fair that someone that's been here for six months gets the same as someone that, that is here for six years. So we're going to weight things differently. Um, so there's no formula how this works. It's the job of the trustees to figure that out, much in the same way as it was the job of the shareholders to figure out what happened to the money they get. And maybe I buy a car or a house, which buys a holiday, or actually more likely, you know, neither of those, because, you know, running an agency business is not really, um, you know, it's not a big, a, a big profit you know, sure. um, endeavor. Um, I'm sure if I wanted to make a ton of money, I would have probably much better off going and working in 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 the city of London, being a banker. But there you go. But but yeah, that's that's how it all kind of fits together, really. So on a on a on a day to day basis, the company will be run as it always has been. It will be run by a leadership team and a board of directors. But rather than on a quarterly basis, those board of directors reporting into or a yearly basis reporting into the shareholders, they report into a trust. Got it. Got it. Ah, makes a lot of sense. And then the decision making can happen year over year, and uh, figuring out what's best for uh, overall. Now, uh, are the the trustees come up from time to time for re-election? I would imagine they have to like make sure that they are uh, that they're within the good graces of their uh, of the employees, right? Yeah. Um. So the way that it works, I mean, again, these these all kind of internal governance things that you can decide as an individual. We decided that we'd have three year term limits. Well, not three-year term limits, but every three years, uh, uh, you know, a spot frees up. And you can vote that same person in again. You can keep voting them. And if they've done a really wonderful job, if you feel that they've not been, you know, representing your best interests, then you can vote somebody else in. What we've also done is we're trying to stagger it. So actually what we, for the first intake of trustees, people will be there for a year two years and three years, and then it will flick into three years. Because what we didn't want to have is over three years have this knowledge of how to run a trust, you know, and, and run trustee meetings to build up. Then suddenly all those trustees get pulled yeah. out at the same time. Sure. So we kind of want to make sure that a new trustee comes in, 
they can learn from the more experienced trustees and then somebody else leaves and a year later somebody else comes in. So you've got this constant rolling level of, of experience and knowledge. You know, what I really like about all of this is the focus on sustainability, the growing a company uh, with, the, with the idea that we can make something that's really lasting, that it could outlive us. I think that's... Um, I think that's wonderful. I think, honestly, it's such a refreshing antidote to the move fast and break things that uh, I hope there's a little sort of synergy between the two over time, you know? Well, one one last thing, which kind of ties in nicely with what you said there. So um, as as the owners of the company, me and Rich, um, had the opportunity to write um, what's called a letter of wishes. Mm, um, yeah. It's not a legal document. It can't be you know, tested in court, but it's basically me and Rich writing down why we created the company, what we value about the company, and moving forward when we are no longer there. Maybe we're dead. Maybe generations have gone by. We've written a letter of wishes to the trustees to say, look, when you're making decisions, we ask you to bear these things in mind. We ask you to think about, you know, advancing the practice of design. We ask you uh, you know, to try and create a culture that means that people share their knurlings openly rather than become defensive. We ask you to try and create a culture uh, where, you know, people, you know, um, I don't know, like, you know, kind of, I forget all of our, our different company values now, but kind of all the values and the things that we that we hold dear. And the trustees can choose to ignore them, but quite often the trustees will go, well, yeah, you know, I've been, I've been asked to kind of look after this, this thing. Um, and these are the values that the the founders instilled, and we want to carry carry this on in the future. Hmm. So yeah, a lot of it is created for that longevity in mind, um, because again, like you know, what we didn't want to happen is for the thing that we've built to be so reliant on the founders that if one of us got hit by a bus, the whole thing would fall fall down. You know, we don't want to create a kind of house of cards. So creating longevity, creating a secession plan, yeah. making, you know, maybe the next 15 years of the clear left journey, somebody else's, you know, um, interesting challenge, um, you know, was really, really important to us. And so, yeah, hopefully clear left will carry on, you know, you know, doing its thing long after me and Rich have, have kind of, you know, you know, left this mortal coil. I love this idea of a wishes letter. I wonder, like, what an amazing uh, exercise it might be for when you're starting a new venture to write your wishes letter, you know, uh, uh, as opposed to when you're starting to think about uh, perhaps the end of your own participation in it. But wonderful stuff. Yeah, well, actually, I do a bit of, I do a bit of, I do a bit of agency founder co coaching. Um, and one of the things that's quite common when you do coaching is asking people to kind of write their own retirement letter, mm. which is a similar thing, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. thinking back, you know, back casting, like, you know, you're at the end of your career, you're getting your golden clock or whatever it is. <laughs> what do you want people to have said about you? What do you want to have achieved? What mark do you want to have left on the industry? And that can be a really, really powerful way of helping people chart their journey forward and understand what it is they're trying to build. Like, are they trying to build a, a long lasting company that has impact or are they trying to, you know, create a better life for their family that they haven't had? Both of those are perfectly reasonable requests. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's a real power in doing that kind of backcasting 
Um, and we do this all the time in product development, you know, writing the, the press release for the launch, you know, 12 months before you've even, you know, started working on the project because it gives you a target, a flag in the sand of what to aim for. So, yeah, all of those kind of things are amazing and I highly recommend people do them. That's great. That's really good. I was just, uh, you know, thinking through this conversation we were just having and all the people out there as designers listening to us. And, uh, and so I popped up your jobs page, but unfortunately you have no current vacancies, which <laughs> I was going to say like, wow, what a great place to work <laughs> clearly. Cause nobody's ever leaving. So, um, but however, <laughs> well, it's a shame. Can- we had a massive round of recruitment a couple of days, a couple of months ago, but yeah, they, they all got filled very quickly, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, they can go to your website to figure out how to hire you all. So I will, uh, I will recommend that. I'll put a link to ClearLeft and, and all the stuff you guys are working on uh, in the show notes. Uh, Andy, this is a fantastic conversation. Yeah, I really learned a lot and I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. And yeah, I look forward to doing this again in the next four years. Yeah, you bet. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.